From PRX, the public radio exchange, and the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we revisit our 2014 interview with Phyllis Tickle, talking about the great emergence and what it means for 21st century Christianity into the next millennium. And we have a pretty good time doing it. Your questions are knockouts, bud. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> Boy, it makes all the difference in the world when you've got somebody who knows what in the world he's talking about. <laughs> We've got the full hour with Dr. Phyllis Tickle coming up. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Phyllis Tickle. Dr. Tickle was the founding editor of the Religion Department of Publishers Weekly, the international journal of the book industry. She is the author of over two dozen books in religion and spirituality, most recently, Emergence Christianity, What It Is, Where It Is Going, and Why It Matters. Also, The Great Emergence, How Christianity is Changing and Why, and The Words of Jesus, A Gospel of the Sayings of Our Lord. In 2004, she received the honorary degree of Doctor of Humane Letters from the Berkeley School of Divinity at Yale University. In 2009, she received an honorary Doctor of Humane Letters from North Park University. She is a lay Eucharistic minister and a lector in the Episcopal Church, and she is the mother of seven children. And with her physician husband, she makes her home on a small farm in Lucy, Tennessee. Phyllis Tickle, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. It's very kind of you to have me, in fact. Well, I want to jump right in and and start to talk about this notion of emergence Christianity. (laughs) And I've heard you speak before, and and you've made the claim in the past that Christianity moves forward in 500-year cycles. And can you explain for our listeners what you mean by this? Yes. And uh, uh, let me preface it by saying, David, that what we are, are talking about is not just Christianity. Approximately every 500 years, those cultures or societies which were susceptible to receiving their Christianity through the Latin language go through a great upheaval that, uh, and we all know it, we just haven't necessarily thought about it, which is to say that uh, we're in the 21st century and we're obviously going through a major time of cataclysmic shifts. Um, And it's across the board, every part of what we're doing. 500 years ago, in the 16th century, we did the same exact thing, except we called it the Great Reformation then instead of the Great Emergence. And a thousand years ago, 500 years before the Great Reformation in the the 11th century, um, we did this thing called the Great Schism or the Great Schism, according to where you grew up and how your mama taught you to say it, but it's the same thing. Um, 1,500 years ago, in the 6th century, we went through what we call the Great Decline and Fall. And then, of course, 2,000 years ago in the first century, we went through the thing that either is called the Great Transformation or the Great Transition. Scholars will waffle back and forth, and I don't know if it matters. It refers to the same thing. It refers to that um, upheaval, that shift that was so dramatic that everything in in Western history has been dated since then in terms of before or after that. Um, And for us as Christians... uh, Obviously, the dating is the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. For our Jewish brothers and sisters, it's the destruction of the temple in 70 of the first century. doesn't matter which date you pivot from. Something clearly happened. And we probably need to say, since I did the 70 thing just now, we need to say that Judaism has the same pattern. If you go back... 500 years from the first century, if you go back 500 years before the Great Transition, uh, you hit uh, the, um, the destruction of the first temple and the institution of second temple Judaism. And if you go back 500 years before that, you hit the end of the age of judges and the establishment of the Davidic dynasty out of which Messiah was to come. So um, it's, it's just there for whatever reason. I don't think the reason necessarily matters. The thing that matters is that we understand it's not just religion. So when you say it's not just about religion, could you expand on what you mean by that? Those of us who are interested in religion are the most chauvinistic people in the world. We absolutely have, you know, one, one, it's like monocular vision. 
we want everything to be about religion, and that's just not true. Um, when we go through these things, it really is across the whole of the culture. It's sociology, politics, economics, uh, aesthetics. Every single thing changes, including religion. And, and the, in our case, it's both the Judaism and Christianity that we can say hold pride of place, the two of them together anyway. Whatever holds a gemira or pride of place um, has to reshuffle and reconfigure itself. So 500 years ago, out of the Great Reformation, um, we got Protestantism. Uh, and 500 years before that, out of the Great Schism or Schism, we got Roman Catholicism as opposed to, to Catholicism, period. Um, and 500 years before that, uh, we got uh, mon- a monastic and consular, uh, uh, monastic Christianity. Um, so that... Um, the, the the form of Christianity, the form of religion, does indeed change. But, 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 it changes because everything around it is changing, which is what's happening now in the Great Emergence. If you remember, you know, they taught you in history class about the 10th, 11th grade, somewhere along there, world history. They taught you, oh, the 16th century, um, that was the Reformation. Um, it was the introduction and assimilation of humanism. It was uh, the establishment of the nation-state. It, it was the it was the coming of capitalism. Uh, it was the rise of the middle class. And oh, by the way, it gave us Protestantism. Everything changes, but religion always it, it, it acts in in concert with the society in which it exists. It's it's contextualized. So what uh, I hear what I hear you saying is that religion very much is is a part and parcel of of the context of the times. But then absolutely. that that leads to the question then when we talk about something like like emergence or the great emergence or emergent Christianity, and in a moment we'll talk about what these different terms mean. Yeah. But are, are we just talking about now just a different form of Protestantism? Absolutely. No, 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 no. I answered too quickly. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, not another form of Protestantism. We're talking about another form of Christianity. As distinct um, from the rest as Anglicanism is from Protestantism or Protestantism is from Orthodoxy or Orthodoxy is from Roman Catholicism, uh, it's, it's a whole, and several scholars have used the image, and I'm very fond of it, uh, it's a whole new tributary in the river, um, uh, the, the, the fast-moving river uh, that is Christianity in general. Um, it, it's just, it, it is, there are characteristics that inform it that might make it distinct uh, from the others. Um, and it's a little early on. We've been at this, what now? In North America, we can date emergence coming from the early 80s um, of continental Europe. You can see it emerging in the, in the 20s and 30s. Uh, it by, in Australia, for instance, you can see it, um, can see it in the early 80s, too. So it, it, we've been at this less than a century, in other words, uh, any way you go at it. And there are um, characteristics that are already evidencing themselves as as being the appertaining to emergent Christianity and making them distinguishable and making it distinguishable from uh, Protestantism, Catholicism, Orthodoxy, Anglicanism. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is noted author, lecturer, and essayist Phyllis Tickle. We're discussing the phenomenon known as emergence Christianity and what it means for the Christian faith globally in the 21st century. So let's let's unpack this term. What is the difference between emerging church or the emergent church, which is another uh, exactly. term that I've heard, or emergence Christianity? How do these varieties fit into what you are calling the great emergence? Yeah. David, the interesting thing was unpacking that really didn't matter until about two or three years ago. Anyway, um, let's go back 500 years to Protestantism and say that we all know, whether we're Protestant or not, we all know what the term Protestantism sort of refers to. We can list um, five or six sensibilities or shared proclivities or characteristics, whatever, that mark Protestantism. However, we also at the same time recognize that they're Baptists and Methodists and Presbyterians and Lutherans, each of which is distinguishable from the other. Um, nobody ever thought that a Lutheran was a Methodist or a Methodist was a Baptist. We recognize that they're all Protestant, but they're different from one another in the same way, in the same way. There is this thing called emergence Christianity, for better or for worse. I'm not excited about the, the term, but that seems to be the one that's going to survive. That is, we're in the time of the great emergence, and that one's probably going to survive as a title, and the Christianity coming out of it 
is emergence Christianity. For what it's worth, there's also emergence Judaism, but that's a different issue. Emergence Christianity uh, means that there are subgroups, uh, component parts of this new tributary that um, all share uh, certain common characteristics and sensibilities and points of view, but that also are beginning more and more um, sharply and definitively to differ from each other. Um, and you just did it. Emerging, I-N-G, is, is probably the oldest presentation of emergence Christianity in this country. But it's different from emergent, G-E-N-T. And both of them are different from neo-monastics. And the neo-monastics should never be confused with the hyphenateds. And the hyphenateds are entirely different, as are all the others, from small church and from missional church and from house church and from cyber church. It depends on how you slice and dice it. You can come up with some eight or ten divisions within emergence Christianity. Obviously, the ones that it's easiest to speak about are emerging and emergent because they seem most consonant with the overarching term of emergence. But um, they don't much like each other anymore. They are beginning to have the same kind of strife and um, disagreement that, for instance, Zwingli and Luther had 500 years ago. Uh, those two gentlemen didn't get on very well. And, and then you get the reformers. You get Calvin coming along and saying, I don't agree with either of you guys. And that's happening now. Um, there are differences. A emerging uh, Christians, for example, who, as I say, are the first to appear uh, in, in continental North America, uh, were the first to begin to organize, they are increasingly moving back toward the factuality of Scripture as opposed to its actuality, whereas emergence are very clear that it's the actuality of Scripture that matters rather than its factuality. Emerging um, are definitely becoming less gender-inclusive, and emergence are becoming more militantly gender-inclusive. Emerging are, and I don't know whether homophobic is the right word, but they certainly are less inclusive in sexual uh, orientation and practice, whereas emergents are uh, aggressively uh, all-inclusive. And so the, the, the differences go on. There are also um, structural differences. One of the things that fascinates me most about the neo-monastics is that they are the first of these groups to arrive at something that is quite definitely and clearly an international organization. Now, it doesn't have a, it doesn't have a physical location. There's not a Vatican or a Canterbury involved here. Uh, it's it's web-based, but there's a thing called the International Community of Communities, and there are thousands of these neo-monastic uh, expressions of emergence Christians that are all connected to each other uh, around the world. They're also the first to develop um, a liturgy. There's a um, thing called the Book of Common Prayer for Ordinary Radicals, um, which is a doorstopper of a book. But what it is is the daily offices based on the liturgical year for living the neo-monastic life, both domestically and in community. Um, it, it's, it's as sure as... Uh, the Book of Common Prayer or anything else. Uh, it is as surely a, a, a liturgy for a group as ever there were. And so it goes on. Um, but there are divisions, and they all share certain things, and they all differ from each other um, in certain distinguishing ways. If you're just joining us, we're listening back to an interview from 2014 with Phyllis Tickle. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back in a moment. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're listening back to a 2014 interview with Phyllis Tickle discussing her work on emerging, emergent, and emergence Christianity. Before the break, Tickle was comparing the great emergence to the Protestant Reformation, which led to the rise of several different denominations. 500 years ago, for instance, 500 years ago when we went through the Great Reformation, uh, Catholicism didn't cease to exist, did it? I mean, we, we both know that. Uh, it, it didn't, but it did have to reconfigure. And I very often tell audiences, you know, with a grin on my face, but meaning it sincerely, that if Roman Catholics had been as obsessed with figures and statistics 500 years ago as we are today, they would have shot the Pope, burned the Vatican, and moved to China. 
because there was nothing to make Protestants out of except Roman Catholics. There just wasn't. I mean, that was it. And so, of course, their figures went down. In the same way, uh, you know, we stand, we Protestants stand and, and, and wail and moan about the diminishing numbers. Well, there's nothing to make emergence Christians out of except Protestants, Roman Catholics, and Anglicans, and to some extent Orthodoxy, so the Orthodox, though they're not many in North America yet, so that, of course, the figures are going down. At the same time, when the figures begin to go down, whatever held hegemony starts to reconfigure and, and essentially ask, colloquially speaking, the question, what in the world am I doing wrong here? Why, why is this happening? And 500 years ago, when when Rome had to do that, what did we get? We got the Council of Trent, right? I mean, it it reconfigured, uh, and as it reconfigured, it, it birthed some new things. Ignatian spirituality comes out of it, um, and so in the same way, uh, what's happening right now is a reconfiguration of Protestantism, which is getting some interesting uh, expressions, some interesting figure things happening. And it, it's fascinating to watch. This reconfiguration is dramatic and a, a kind of beautiful thing. Um, there was, a, well, as you know, there has been uh, over the last 30 or 40 years um, a reshuffling in American, North American evangelicalism um, where that body is, um, oh, one, it's splinters maybe, splintering, uh, uh, not falling apart, that's too strong, but certainly... Um, if you read books like American Grace by Putnam, <laughs> you're aware that much of, there's a reshuffling, let's use that word, there's a reshuffling in evangel- American evangelicalism, and part of that reshuffling 20 years ago was the birthing out, 25 years ago, was the birthing out of what's called progressive Christians, or what was called progressive Christianity, um, which was an attempt to effect certain political and moral and sociological changes upon the society without um, necessarily beating everybody over the head with evangelical theology. <laughs> that, that group now, um, instead of calling itself progressive more and more, calls itself convergent Christians or convergence Christians. Um, and uh, so that, too, is a, is a reaction on a part of established Protestantism, if you will, or what was established Protestantism, to the changes that are happening as this new thing emerges. See, that's why I hate it being emergence Christianity and the great emergence, because then you have to use the word emerging, and that makes it sound as if they're related, and that drives me crazy. But whether we like it or not, something is emerging uh, that is different from, or that is ancillary to, and part of, emergence Christianity. Um, so anyway, it's, it's an exciting time to watch, and it, I go to bed every night thinking, I've got it nailed, I've got it figured. And I get up the next morning, the blessed thing has changed again. Um, it's that fluid and dynamic. I would assume that um, it, over the next 20 years, things will settle down and we have a clearer sense of exactly where the patterns are. Meanwhile, it's an exciting ride. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is noted author, lecturer, and essayist Phyllis Tickle. We're discussing the phenomenon known as emergence Christianity and what it means for Christian faith globally in the 21st century. At several points, you've mentioned the Protestant Reformation. And if we think about the Protestant Reformation in terms of technology, one of the things that we can note being parallel to the rise of Protestantism is, is the rise of book culture. And then if we if we look throughout the 20th century, we can we can see uh, another sort of strange shift from face to face worship. And then in the 20s, we come to experience people beginning to worship through the new medium of radio. And then in the 1950s and then on into the 70s and 80s, we we have the advent of television and many begin to have their worship experience by watching a television program. And. I've been reading some literature on this, and it seems like a lot of those people, as they move from face-to-face to to radio to to television, they didn't think that they were having a simulation of worship. They thought that they were having an an authentic worship experience, actual worship. Absolutely, absolutely. How does this this new advent among us, and I'm going to point now to social media and the World Wide Web, how are these new technologies affecting worship, and how do they factor into this great emergence that we're discussing? I'm so glad you asked that question. Uh, You know, so... Rarely do I get a chance to speak to that. And you're absolutely right on. When we went to radio, you had this sudden sense or this gradual sense 
that you were praying with people all over the world who could hear this man's voice and offer this prayer with him. It was an enormous intimacy. And I can remember as a child when Bishop Fulton Sheen used to sweep onto the television screen with that. I mean, nobody ever played vestments any better than Fulton Sheen. Uh, what a sense of exhilaration. And I was in a church that transcended both the walls of our home and, and the walls of a church. We were in a different place. And there is a progression. Uh, you're absolutely right. There's a progression right on up to where we are right now. Cyber church is as much a part of this as, as any, anything else you could want. It's best seen by most people, I think, uh, if you go into Second Life um, and look at it there. But what it means is that millions of our fellow Americans are now getting their principal or their soul worship experience um, on the Internet, in virtuality. Um, virtuality um, it happens when uh, there are actual sacred spaces or sacred parts of virtuality um, where one can go to worship. I'm Episcopalian, as you know, Anglican. And uh, in Second Life, we operate uh, what's called the Cathedral on the Isle of the Epiphany. There's some 800 congregants now who worship there every week. I think there are, I believe, four worship services now. I think there's a clergy staff of five, if I'm remembering correctly. The whole thing is run under the, in, phys, uh, in physicality, under the auspices or the Episcopal oversight of the Bishop of Guilford. Um, and uh, people in physicality uh, pick up an avatar and enter Second Life, and through their avatar they worship in what looks and talks and walks and quacks a lot like a normal Episcopal service or an Anglican service. And it's fascinating uh, what it means, of course, at a practical and a pastoral level, and priest after priest is very quick to tell me to be sure I say this, is that folk, um, many folk, who cannot uh, go physically to church, who cannot have that experience, um, can do so on the net, can do so in virtuality, and how wonderful that is. And um, uh, folk who perhaps would not uh, feel comfortable uh, in a worship space can do so there in private. Now, it raises all kinds of questions. Um, can an avatar priest consecrate um, pixel sacraments uh, and give them uh, to avatar parishioners? I mean, can an avatar priest hear confession? Uh, can he give absolution? There are all kinds of questions that are uh, having to be worked out. But it's absolutely there. The other part of this is what you say about the social network. I will be 80 my birthday, and I have friends, colleagues, contemporaries, who uh, routinely uh, enter into a site for their prayer life. That's, that's where they pray. Uh, and they are uh, praying. Some of it is by Skype, but usually it's not. Usually it's by pixels. Um, and so it gives a whole new meaning to the church universal. Uh, to the church non-corporeal, non-sighted. Um, so now my congregation is my Facebook page. My congregation is my blog. My congregation is my website where I pray. Um, uh, as you may or may not know, I, I keep the divine hours. I, I keep uh, the offices uh, every three hours. And uh, I'm amazed at the number of sites out there where people every three hours stop and share a common breviary um, without anything orally or audibly being said. They are praying quietly together. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is noted author, lecturer, and essayist Phyllis Tickle. We're discussing the phenomenon known as emergence Christianity and what it means for the Christian faith globally in the 21st century. Well, let, let's continue with this thread, because we live in a culture where scientific explanation has largely replaced religious explanation exactly. for most phenomenon. Exactly. And when I was teaching college students, I used to point out to them that even even the, the, the devout students in my class, if they got sick or if they got a toothache, their first impulse would be to go to a doctor or right. a dentist and not to call a priest. Right. And I, I pointed out to them that this was an example of just how deeply science had taken root Mm -hmm. and had taken the place of faith as a bedrock of their worldview. That's right. Now, has this shift to a basic comfort with scientific thinking affected emergence Christianity? Is that a, is that a bulwark of emergence Christianity? You know, Christianity? I, it, it, interestingly enough, I think it has affected established or inherited church more than emergence, because emergence just assumes it. Uh, 
it's it's very difficult sometimes for uh, older folk to understand that people 40 and under were born into the great emergence. So they grew up with the assumption that, you you know, after what, 1939, penicillin was actually first postulated, and by 41 it was functional. You know, after 41, you get a cold, you, of course you're going to call the doctor or you're going to go to the pharmacist. And, and they just grew up on that assumption, whereas inherited church, as you just said, inherited church hasn't necessarily made that leap or that accommodation. They're still using yesterday's forms, and there was nothing wrong with them, uh, except that they just don't speak to people who have gone up on this side um, uh, of what's happened, this side of post-modernity or this side of emergence, whatever you want to call it. Inherited church Christians, uh, that is everybody from the beginning up until about 40 years ago, you know, will say, I, I, I lift up mine eyes into the hills from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord my God. And that's absolutely true. Emergence people, whether they are emergence Christians or emergence Jews or spiritual but not religious, I don't care where on the spectrum they fall, they will say, I lift up mine eyes through the hubble, and oh, my God, which is vastly different, vastly different. It's exactly what you're talking about. Uh, it is to fall down before the absolute wonder of what's out there. And we didn't have that 40 years ago. We didn't know it. We had no access to it. And it has changed everything. Where I see it more significantly, perhaps, um, than anywhere else in all of this is it's changed the whole nature of spirituality. Now, whether you're a believer or not, you look at all of it and you see an amazement. You see uh, something out there that the term God doesn't feel quite sufficient for because we've used it. It's as if our vocabulary hasn't quite caught up with that, oh, my God, experience that happens when you look through a microscope or up through a telescope or up through something like the Hubble. Um, and it, it has made it all right to talk about spirituality uh, without having to talk about religion. It's almost as if religion were a tin can that had exploded and let all of its contents out and lies kind of in shards. Uh, around the exploded, uh, the exploded content. It's a huge part. What you put your finger on is a huge part of what's going on. Well, you mentioned that I just put my finger on something, so let's, let's keep my finger there for a second. <laughs> Faraday, James Clerk Maxwell, Sir Isaac Newton, these are names that we now associate purely with scientific inquiry. But if we, if we look at them in their full history and the full history of their writings, their deep reflection into the physical world was fueled in just about each case by a deep religious reflection. Right. So Isaac right. Newton, for example, he wrote more about religion and theology than he did, he did about physical processes. And he was only studying, uh, I mean, he came to reductionism only because he was a passionate Christian, a passionate believer. Yeah. Now, why, why do you think that it is that we've lost the thread of that narrative that kept these two things together? And the, the, the more important question is, does emergence Christianity in some way return us to that narrative where these two things, science and spirituality, are threaded together again. Yes, yes. because it, uh, it is perfectly uh, willing to see the compatibility of the two. And for the passionate emergence Christian, uh, it, what, what you see when you look through the Hubble is a grander concept of God than ever that word uh, has been used to mean before. There is also a freedom, and I, I, I think more than anything else, it's the freedom that fascinates me. There's a freedom to say, okay, let's lay aside God. Let's lay aside theology. Let's lay aside what the ages have taught us and see what it is we're looking at and see if it will come home to that. Harvey Cox um, is, is one of uh, the better-known academics who's, who's now arguing that what we're in right now, what do you call it, the great emergence, the great convergence, or the great reset, uh, which is what Richard Florida wants to call it. I love that one, the great reset. What, whatever you want to call this thing, it is more analogous to what happened 2,000 years ago when we changed the era than it is analogous even to the 6th century, the 11th century, or the 16th century. Uh, that this one is pivotal, and it pivots right here where you put your finger. It pivots on an expand, a vastly expanded 
human conceptuality and vastly expanded information. Technical information doubles every, less than every 10 months now. That's startling. That's startling. None of us can even comprehend what that means. This opens up, it, it maybe almost obviates all of the old um, theological terms, or it, it doesn't obviate them so much as it asks us to lay them aside and look at what we're looking at and then pick which ones of the old tools we will bring back into the conversation. It's an attempt to break out of the old parameters, maybe, uh, the old restrictions on what we could and couldn't think, and look at the wonder of what is before us and accept the transcendence of that, uh, that there has been a major lurch forward. The, the, the other thing that we've not said, and when you were naming scientists, I thought you were going to go for Darwin, is that we've got a brand-new anthropology um, and there again, you've got a man who started out as a devout Christian, very devout. He was thinking of studying for the priesthood, as a matter of fact. We cured him. We made an atheist out of him before it was over by the way we treated him um, uh, because we wouldn't let him have his wonder and his facts. Uh, they didn't fit in our container. But the, uh, the, the thing is that in the emergence, there's a willingness to accept the facts, to accept science, accept the wonder of all of this without trying to superimpose on it a theological basis, but at the same time, there's a passion for God that is excited by this information, which is not exactly the same thing as starting as a devout Christian and then going forth to explore. It's almost the opposite direction with the same result. It's being excited by what's out there and wanting to explore it and bumping up against the oh-my-God phenomenon, that there is something out there. Um, and uh, one, of the, one of the things that interests me about this is that, uh, actually, I saw some figures the other day, um, that the number of avowed atheists may be decreasing in this country. It's shifting over to those who, hmm, I don't know, which is, uh, I mean, it wasn't uh, maybe two or percentage. I wish I could remember. I don't like citing something when I can't remember what it was I saw, but, but it's something like 2% fewer uh, atheists uh, and an increase in the agnostics. That's saying something to me. I think that's fascinating. Um, and so, yes, emergence is perfectly willing. If, if this is a scientific fact, if whatever you're telling me can indeed be demonstrated, uh, can be shown uh, to be true, then it's got to be the God I worship is the God of truth. And it's got to be that it fits somewhere. Um, and so I'm not afraid of your truth. Uh, and I will... Um, I will see how it fits, and if it doesn't fit, I'll just live with the contradiction. But it doesn't, it doesn't impinge on my faith. It doesn't impugn my faith. It simply increases it. And that, I think, is very exciting. We're listening back to a 2014 interview with Phyllis Tickle talking about the great emergence. This is Things Not Seen. We'll be back in a moment. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we offer a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're listening back today to a 2014 interview with Phyllis Tickle speaking about the great emergence and what it means for Christianity in the 21st century. Before the break, we were discussing how recent advances in science had changed religious perception. Now, if I'm hearing you correctly, then then what we should be encouraging young people entering seminary to do is to maybe <laughs> look at less theology and instead study some physics and some information theory. David, I have said over and over again to audience, especially when I'm in seminaries, I would not let any young person, male or female, and certainly not any middle-aged person, male or female, into a seminary uh, unless he or she had an undergraduate degree in physical science, preferably uh, in, uh, in physics, um, and as a substitute perhaps in mathematics. I don't think you can preach uh, nowadays. I don't think you can think theologically without an acute way. And, that, you know, this from a woman, I had one class in physics, all right, you know, one class in physics, and I, there were 17 of us. I was the only girl in the class, and I wasn't married yet. So uh, I laugh and say it was more applied biology than physics. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, there's an arrogance in what I'm saying. Uh, but I must also hasten to say uh, I read uh, perhaps more than than one would expect or than would be normal now, within uh, physics. Granted, at the popular or lay level, at the TED level, uh, at the you know learning institute uh, school, uh, course um, level, uh, because one has to. Uh, you 
you cannot, yes, you cannot teach or preach without that now. I would even maybe tentatively go so far as to say, I don't think you can worship as completely or fully or richly uh, without at least some um, awareness, without looking at science news every week, for instance, if you want to do it at a really lay level, um, uh, without looking at some TED Talks. Uh, I think that's just there. Um, it is our world, and it's a, in the same way that I suspect uh, by 15, 17, 18, 19, you could not worship um, fully without understanding what happened in 1492 when the earth went from being flat to being round. Um, and I mean that quite seriously. Um, you would, your worship would have been more impoverished had you not acknowledged what Columbus did. And in the same way, I suspect worship is more impoverished today if it does not acknowledge what's happening uh, in the physical sciences. And I'm dead serious about that. We're speaking to Phyllis Tickle. We'll be back after a short break. This is Things Not Seen, conversations about culture and faith. If you're listening to the show for the first time and you like what you hear, we have over 50 shows archived on our website, thingsnotseenradio.com, and they're all free and available for download. And if you want to carry them along with you, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Search for Things Not Seen Podcast in the iTunes store. And while you're there, we'd love it if you took a moment to write a review and give us a rating. That's actually unbelievably helpful to us in getting the word out about the show. If you're on Twitter, take a moment and follow us at Not Seen Radio. If you want to keep up with me and the silly things that I tweet about, you can do that by following at Dalt Radio. And one more plug. If you haven't discovered our Daily Religion Moments podcast yet, you're truly missing out on a treasure. Each and every day, our senior producer, Katie Scroggin, finds some highlight from religious history and turns it into this incredible, informative little two-minute gem. Seriously, they're brilliant, they're free, and they happen every day. You should be listening. And even better, we have all of them archived on our website. So if you're just now starting to listen to Religion Moments, you've not missed out on a thing. You can go back and explore all the catalog just like you were traveling back in time. And thank you, as always, for listening. If you're just joining us, we're listening back to a 2014 interview with Phyllis Tickle on The Great Emergence. This is Things Not Seen. Does emergence Christianity have a political footprint? And by this, what That's I mean an is... interesting question. If we look at liberation theology, for example, that has a specific agenda for engaging faith in the world to try and make the present day better. And then on the other side of the spectrum, if we look at a quietist movement like, say, the Amish, they advocate instead just a full withdrawal from the political realm into insular communities of piety. So where does... Can we talk about where emergence Christianity falls on this spectrum, or is it too early to characterize it in a political manner? Uh, I don't know the answer. That's the reason I, I find it interesting. Uh, it's not the first time that I've heard somebody ask about it. And, and right now there's kind of scattergun, uh, as you just said. There's a, a, something of a scattergun approach. Uh, clearly the convergence Christians that I was talking about, um, who come up out of progressive, evan uh, progressive Christianity, up out of evangelicalism, have an agenda. If you look at, um, for instance, Brian McLaurin's book, A Generous Orthodoxy, that came out several years ago, is commonly re he's commonly regarded as the Martin Luther of emergence, and, and a generous orthodoxy is commonly regarded as the analog of the 95 Theses. And one of the big things there um, is greenness, um, a sense that one, and this is political, obviously, that one must be concerned, deeply concerned about the creation. Uh, and it's argued theologically that... Um, if you look at the book of Revelation, um, what happens is that the city of God, uh, the, 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 king, the God is, ah, I'll say it in a minute, the city of God is on earth, uh, and God is above, and there's free intercourse between the two, but that it is the redemption of creation that this is about. And that militates for our all being uh, deeply green, deeply concerned as Christians uh, about the creation. So that's there. If you look historically... Uh, at uh, the peri-emergence, the thing leading up to emergence itself, 
you see big movements like Dorothy Day, uh, Day and, and Peter Martin, uh, Martin, I'll say in a minute, uh, in the Catholic worker uh, thing. Deeply, you look and you see, uh, obviously, liberation. Those are there. If you look at, again, uh, McLaurin's uh, principles of uh, generous orthodoxy, um, you see also uh, a deep concern for uh, social justice, only it's defined very specifically. Uh, it's, it's defined as not that look what we have done for somebody, but look what we together have done together. Um, and, and the quip is, Jesus Christ didn't, didn't live in a, in a gated community, and he doesn't much want you to either, um, which is a way of, of getting at, at the same thing. So there are variations of it. And yes, they are what would be called political um, uh, evidences or applications of what's happening. Where it's going to come down with a central footprint beyond uh, certain kinds of social justice without, and, and very communal social justice um, and uh, greenness, uh, I can't quite tell. Um, and I don't know if anybody can tell. There doesn't, for instance, seem to be a unified, or I have missed it if there is, a unified position on things like, for instance, right now, Syria, um, on do we enter or do we not. Um, there seems to be a fair division about gun control. Um, there's a very clear, I think, stand on, uh, on abortion that it should be allowed within certain parameters, but not a clear decision about where the parameters are. So um, it's not evangelicalism in this country in the 70s and 80s, certainly, could have been said to have a clear political footprint. I mean, I think you and I could both sit here and figure out what that footprint was, and we pretty much agree. I don't see it yet in emergence. Uh, obviously, religion is going to always have a political expression, or it's going to function within religion and politics within it. But it's not, to me anyway, as an observer, real clear beyond McLaurin's initial statements in a generous orthodoxy and some of its history, like Dorothy Day uh, and like Gutierrez uh, and Romero, um, not, not as clear yet as maybe it will become. Or it's entirely possible it never will coalesce, um, that there will just be a sensibility that leads the individuals to, to follow a pattern without any organized push toward it, without any expression of what they're for. I, I don't know. There, there is... Um, there is a movement now internationally to do something of what you're talking about, to actually, in written form, uh, lay down some, some principles uh, of the ways in which uh, faith appertains or affects uh, conduct in, in the world outside religion. But that's not entirely formulated yet. So I don't know. It's, it's an interesting question. Is there going to be a clear footprint? I'm not real sure there will be. This is Things Not Seen. <clears throat> This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is noted author, lecturer, and essayist Phyllis Tickle. We're discussing the phenomenon known as emergence Christianity and what it means for the Christian faith globally in the 21st century. Now, the little church that I pastored down south of Nashville would say, if they heard us having this conversation, uh, let's just sing the old hymns and give me the old-time religion. So what are some of the criticisms that you encounter when you teach about the great emergence? And what are more, for lack of a better term, mainline Protestants and Catholics and Anglicans fearful of when they encounter this movement? Well, I, I think the diminishing numbers is the first thing that gets them, uh, along with the diminishing endowment, uh, and, and that's perfectly normal, uh, perfectly understandable. Uh, I think, but though, before we get to the theological concerns, it really is the immediate concerns of can we keep the lights on, and wh- how are we going to pray a, uh, pay a preacher? Um, but uh, obviously, when you get to the mid-judicatories or the, the more organized or hierarchical parts of, uh, of Protestantism and Roman Catholicism, you arrive at, at some theological concerns. But at the parish level that you're talking about, the small church south of Nashville, um, you know, Protestantism isn't going to go away, and we're not going to throw it away. Many of our small parishes or congregations are indeed going to um, have to merge with others, and we see that happening already. A uh, thing called Call to Common Mission, uh, which was 
Lord, six or seven years of painful uh, confabulation uh, before Lutherans and and Anglicans agreed to share congregations and share seminaries and share priests uh, or pastors. And now, what, there are about seven or eight, I think, Protestant divisions that fall under the, the call to common mission thing and can swap around. We're going to get that. We're not going to throw away traditional Protestantism. We're not going to throw away traditional Catholicism. Um, we're not going to throw away those old-time uh, uh, hymns. Um, they're dear and important uh, in, in every way. Uh, it's just that in the same way that 500 years ago, Protestantism didn't destroy Catholicism. Uh, this one isn't going to destroy Protestantism or Catholicism. And they're going to be... It concerns me, and, and I say it too much, but it's not enough to be right. You've also got to be pastoral. Uh, that is to say, in, in, in 14, if I'm going to talk Columbus, in, in 1493 or 94, 95, um, okay, the world is, flat, is, is round. We've proved that. But if you've grown up in a flat world and that's where you formed your Christianity, you don't have to go out and accept the, the round one if you don't want to. Um, there's a place for your flat earth, um, and it's not hurting anybody. Now, a lot of people scream when I say that, but it's not. Um, and there's a perfect place. Ray Anderson, at, um, now deceased, but at Fuller Seminary, um, one of the most beloved professors perhaps in, in modern and uh, contemporary Christian uh, teaching, used to say that it's Antioch and Jerusalem all over again. And he was absolutely right. Um, that Jerusalem existed right up until uh, the temple was destroyed, obviously, or the city was destroyed. Uh, Jerusalem uh, existed and uh, had one form of Christianity, and Antioch had another. And they never agreed, um, but they did indeed have intercourse between the two, uh, uh, Jerusalem sent Paul over to Antioch to see if there was anything Antioch needed, anything they could give. Um, and then Antioch sent Paul back to talk with James and Peter to say, we need some help here, boys. We need some rulings. We've changed some things about the historic faith. And they battled it out in what's called the First Council of the Church, the Council of Jerusalem. Uh, they battled it out. Uh, but they, they never did agree, uh, and yet, uh, of course, uh, each fed the other in, in significant ways. And so the little church down in the Dell, uh, the little brown church in the Dell, uh, is to be honored and loved. And as long as there are people there, and there will be young people, let's be, let's be real clear. Emergence Christians, if you go into a meeting, now are about a third as white-haired as I am. This is not... Uh, uh, older citizens um, are beginning to understand something's happening here. For one thing, they have the time to think about it and the impunity to think about it. Whereas the little church in the Dell or the inherited church, if you want to give it a more dignified uh, term, in general uh, appeals both to the older citizen but specifically um, to that group of people who are between 45 and 60 or 65 Uh they neither grew up in emergent sensibilities, nor are they old enough to um, be able to give up the, the sensibilities of modernism that formed them. And so they need a religious expression, a place of worship uh, that appertains to their values and their customs. Well, God bless them, and may it be so. Uh, and may um, many of the established uh, congregations or churches uh, or communions that do have the money find a way to make it possible for um, those smaller ones to continue to survive so long as they are useful and meet a purpose in the, in the kingdom of God. Um, but uh, the thing that is dangerous, the thing we must worry about or try to prevent, is the scorning of uh, either Jerusalem or Antioch, each for the other. Um, we do different things uh, within the kingdom, um, and the position of each of us is as holy and devout um, uh, as God chooses to make it. Um, so it's not for us to scorn. And that's, um, that's an, I think, an important lesson uh, for some of us who, who kind of think that we are, are fast and on the ball and uh, very with it. Um, 
to look back and remember that this is what we came from and this still is valuable. This still has something to say uh, to us in every way. Well, Phyllis Tickle, I have very much enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us. Well, thank you for having me. I loved your questions. Our guest today was Phyllis Tickle. Dr. Tickle is the founding editor of the Religion Department at Publishers Weekly, the international journal of the book industry. She's the author of over two dozen books on religion and spirituality, most recently Emergence Christianity, What It Is, Where It Is Going, and Why It Matters, also The Great Emergence, How Christianity is Changing and Why, and The Words of Jesus, A Gospel of the Sayings of Our Lord. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC, in association with the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. Today's show was recorded at WBEZ's Navy Pier Studios overlooking beautiful Lake Michigan. WBEZ is not responsible for the content of this program. Additional production for this week took place at the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club in the Chicago Loop. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keija. Mary Gaffney engineered the show. David Dalt did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Badenoch. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about upcoming guests. That's Facebook.com slash Things Not Seen Radio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and hear extra audio from our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.